0: Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events.
1: seminar is held on the homelands of the Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners and to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, along with the elders of other communities who may be here today. I'd like to give a warm welcome to Friends of the Library, Grattan Institute members, and tonight's speakers Dr. Heather Holst, Jenny Smith, Brendan Coates, and Peter Mays. I'm pleased to be here this evening to welcome you all to this important conversation addressing how governments can help struggling Australians with rising housing costs and reduce the number of Australians who are ho- homeless. A 2018 street count found almost 400 people were sleeping rough across five inner Melbourne council areas, and many of them are on the waiting list for public housing. There were 279 rough sleepers counted in the city of Melbourne alone. In my years working within the library sector, I've become acutely aware of how tough life can be for the homeless and how important free and safe public spaces like libraries are to those who have so little they can call their own. Libraries play a hugely important role in the lives of the financially disadvantaged and the homeless. Libraries don't require a cash transaction to use and are blind to the social status of their clientele. At state and local libraries, people are able to access physical and digital resources and free or low-cost programs and services, including information technology, which has become so vital in accessing government services. They're able to do this in a supported environment with library staff at hand to help. Libraries encourage social inclusion and a community engagement. They're places that can and do give our most vulnerable a leg up to improve their situations, or at the very least, somewhere to shelter against the elements and harsh realities of social isolation. Ideally, no one would experience homelessness. In a world where they do, It's important to consider libraries as critical supports for those doing it tough. But perhaps we can work towards stopping homelessness before it begins. I'm looking forward to hearing from the panel tonight about the best ways to help low income earners deal with rising housing costs and to reduce homelessness. It's such an important issue and I'm delighted that State Library Victoria's partnership with the Grattan Institute continues to deliver these forward-looking conversations. Leading tonight's discussion is Peter Mays. Peter is the author of No Place Like Home, Repairing Australia's Housing Crisis, published last year by TEXT. Peter is lead moderator with the Cranlana Institute for Ethical Leadership, an independent, not-for-profit organisation dedicated to developing the ethical decision-making skills of Australia's leaders. He's also an adjunct fellow in the Centre for Urban Transitions at Swinburne University and a regular contributor to Inside Story magazine. Previously, Peter worked for 25 years as a journalist and broadcaster with the ABC. Please welcome Brendan, Heather, Jenny and Peter.
2: Thanks very much, Helena, and thank you to the Grattan Institute for inviting me to chair this discussion. Actually, they didn't invite me, I pushed my way in. I said I, want, I saw the advertisement and said, I want to be part of this, so thank you very much. Um, I'll, I'll introduce you a bit more to our panellists in a moment, but I just want to make some comments about the public debate about Australia's housing market because it reminds me of um, said Hanrahan by the bush poet John O'Brien. Uh, the farmer Hanrahan is chatting with his neighbours outside church and talking of the weather, of course, and there's been a long dry spell, and Hanrahan says... If we don't get three inches man or four to break this drought, we'll all be ruined, said Hanrahan, before the year is out. A few weeks later, of course, the rains come and when the farmers gather, Hanrahan has new cause for despair. And every creek a banker ran and dams filled over top, we'll all be ruined, said Hanrahan, if this rain doesn't stop. Now, in 2017, we panicked that the real estate boom would never never end. In 2018, we panicked that house prices were crashing. Now, with the RBA lowering interest rates and APRA relaxing its prudential lending requirements, analysts are predicting property values will resume their upward trajectory. And in terms of housing affordability, affordable housing, this is a tragedy. What generally gets overlooked in terms of um, our public debate about housing is that for Australians on low incomes, the housing crisis is not some eventuality to be feared down the track but a reality to be lived through every day. And it can be a deadly reality, as the tragic death of Courtney Heron has reminded us in recent days. And as we have this discussion, our thoughts are with Courtney Heron and her family and her friends. Half of all low-income households in the private rental market are already living in housing stress, that is spending more than 30% of their disposable income on rent, which doesn't leave enough, and often much more than that, which doesn't leave enough for other essentials. Homelessness is on the rise and the share of social housing has been in decline for decades. So there's a powerful argument that government should do more to help Australia's most disadvantaged citizens to find secure and appropriate housing. And the question for this policy pitch is what is the best and most effective way to do so? So let me introduce our three panellists a bit more detailed. Jenny Smith is the chair of Homelessness Australia, the peak national body providing advocacy for the homelessness sector. She's had a career uh, beginning in social work and family therapy, but over 30 years of professional life in the public sector, in leadership roles, in policy management, government training and service delivery, including in the health and community sectors. Dr Heather Holst is the inaugural Commissioner for Residential Tenancies in Victoria, and she has almost 30 years' experience working in the housing, tenancy and homelessness sectors before taking up the role of commissioner. She was deputy CEO and chief operating officer of Launch Housing, one of um, Victoria's or one of Australia's leading community housing providers. Um, And Brendan Coates is the Australian Perspectives Fellow at the Grattan Institute, and he's an economist, and his research focuses on a number of things, tax reform, economic and budgetary policy, retirement incomes and superannuation, it's got him in an argument with Paul Keating, um, and cities and housing. um, welcome to you all. Uh, and our format is a discussion, no PowerPoints. And after a 45 minutes of us talking, I'm going to invite your comments and questions from the floor. Um, if you haven't done so already, put your mobile phone on silent, etc. And this is being recorded as a podcast and a transcript as well will go on the Grattan Institute website. So let's start by establishing the scale of the problem, the extent of the problem. Jenny, how... how How would you characterise the size of the problem we face?
3: Well, we've got um, two major sources of data that we refer to regularly. Um, One is the census that happens every five years. And last time those figures were counted in 2016, we have more than 116,000 people every night in this country uh, who are homeless. The other uh, important data that we look at all the time is the number of people fronting up to our specialist homelessness services around the country uh, looking for assistance. And uh, the last full set of figures for that uh, was in excess of 288,000 different people uh, every year. And when you think that those services are turning away more than 260 people a day, um, it's a very, very significant problem in this very wealthy country.
2: So the, it's interesting, that 116,000 figure, because it doesn't seem that big in one way. As a proportion of the population, it's tiny. But in fact, it's not a fixed population, is it? It's people moving in and out of that. Um, so if the ripple effect is much larger than that. Oh, yes, than so that's, from,
3: that's a point in time. Yeah. That's. You know, one night, it's the, and it's obviously an interesting count. And while the, you know, one night figures supplemented by some surveying by the ABS, it's still a point in time, any day. And I think the figure of people making it through all the other service systems in our community hospitals, other community services to our specialist homelessness system 288,000 different people, it's huge.
2: Heather, how do you, how would you characterise the problem or the extent of the problem?
0: Um, I think Jenny's put the the figures that we know uh, very clearly. Um, I, I would say, I suppose, Peter, why wouldn't it be getting worse? Um, because there really isn't anything effective and sustained uh, being done about it. Um, so we know that Australia's, uh, you know, growing. Um, Melbourne is a great example <laughs> of that. Uh, and yet, social housing, uh, particularly public housing, absolutely freeze-framed. Um, you know, the the growth in public housing's been minuscule. Uh, There's been a little bit more growth in community housing, but but very small.
2: And we should just explain the difference between public housing, community housing, and social housing, because we'll throw these terms around, and they all have slightly different meanings. So, do you want to just summarise what we mean by each of them?
0: So, the, the umbrella term social housing, and that includes the two types. Public housing uh, is that delivered by the the state housing authorities, basically, so still within government, uh, very uh, transparent um, access arrangements, rent arrangements, reasons for eviction all published uh, community housing is a newer sector, able to do uh, a lot more in an innovative sort of way boutique sort of um, operations um, but not to the sort of scale of public housing so they tend to be not-for-profit run yeah
2: run as, run by
0: not-for-profits
2: yeah. and yeah and we should also uh, maybe just define the difference between social housing and affordable housing because that's another term afford so social housing normally tenants have pay a fixed proportion of their income in rent normally 25 percent that's right isn't it 25 to 30 yeah, yeah. And they'll generally be people in receipt of Centrelink payments mm. or pensions or mm. things like that.
0: That's right. I think to qualify you have to have at least a dollar
2: of assistance through Centrelink. Mm. Mm. Whereas affordable housing, your rent would be pegged at a proportion of the prevailing private rental rate. So 80% normally of, of the prevailing rate for rental.
0: Yeah, that's right. And there's still a little bit of means testing particularly coming in um, that, that's applied to that to kind of match the supply up with the
2: demand, but, yeah, around 75%, 80%. Mm. Okay, so your point was, why are we surprised? Mm. Yeah,
0: Yeah, take your hands off the wheel,
2: Mm.
0: let it go, and and this is what you get. Uh, uh, Notable exceptions, you know, there have been some attempts to to intervene, but with a a big issue like housing supply and demand, um, you know, you need to do it in a more coherent way.
4: Mm -hmm. Brendan. So I'd probably take a broader view on what the problems are, um, so, homelessness is the really acute end where, you know, quite frankly, this is whether someone's, what someone's life looks like for the next five years, whether they have a life beyond that time. It's an enormous problem and it is growing. But I would take a step back and say, well, look, the problems as we see them, I suppose, are one, first of all, housing's become really expensive to own or rent at a, at a macro level. Um, Peter, you mentioned before, prices have been going up. Look, they've been going up. Well, they went up and then they've come down, but they're still well above where they were even five years ago. Um, they're in fact back to where I was when I bought, so we'll be interested to see what happens from here. Um, so I am a homeowner and I should declare that interest. Um, so you've got a problem where housing's become more expensive over the last three decades. It's become ex- particularly expensive for low income earners, so rents and rental costs at the lower end have risen faster than rental costs overall. and. It's not surprising in a world where you've got housing becoming more expensive that the most vulnerable Australians struggle the most. And by that I mean those that are low income earners that are in rental stress, that's gone up a lot. Because if you're in that situation, you just don't have the income to deal with that kind of cost. And then if you think of homelessness, homelessness is caused by lots of different things, but a big structural factor is how much it costs. Um, And it's no coincidence that homelessness is rising in Melbourne and Sydney where housing is most expensive. And so you've kind of got a combination of problems at the market level and then the adequacy of social supports that we're providing via government or via the community sector in order to assist people that find themselves on really hard times.
2: And I'm right in saying, I think I know, that rents have not been growing as fast as house prices, but they still have been growing much faster than wages or other cost of living, uh, CPI and so on.
4: That's correct, and particularly at the bottom, that's where, how so low income earners today are spending much more of their income on housing than what they were a decade or two ago, whereas higher income earners are not. And it leads into questions like broader discussions around inequality, so one of the things that we're seeing is income inequality isn't rising very much in the long run. It's actually, the increases we're talking about are relatively small, but income inequality after housing costs are taken into account has risen a lot, so incomes have risen roughly equally across the distribution, but after you take into account housing, they've risen much more at the top than the bottom, and then you get to wealth, and then wealth inequality is a big mm-hmm. issue. Mm.
2: There's a great little chart in the Orange, Grattan Orange book. I think that's where it was. Is that where I saw it? That shows that?
4: Well, this is the only time you'll ever see someone from Grattan speaking without charts, is no. at these events.
2: Yeah, so it's a great chart and um, uh, well worth looking at. So, so uh, what about other factors, um, Jenny and Heather, on, I mean, we, you know, obviously... The supply of affordable housing and the costs of rents are, are decisive factors, but there are other triggers that um, often lead to homelessness. What, so what sort of factors lead to homelessness and why are we, apart from the, the cost of housing, what, other, what else is going on here?
3: Well, you know, I think we focus on those other issues um, that can lead... Uh, people into homelessness a bit too much. Um, you know, we focus on uh, people with uh, long-term mental illness, uh, substance misuse, um, acquired brain injury. Um, you know, the complexities of family life. violence. Family it? violence is the as the biggest single driver of people presenting um, homeless to our services. But what those people all have in common um, is a reduced income. So if you've got a long-term mental illness, you are less likely to be able to t- participate in employment. Um, a woman and children escaping family violence uh, may have lost the income that uh, allowed her, uh, them to sustain that uh, property in, and in the um, working through of that homelessness be quite some time until they've got uh, an income that could sustain uh, private rental. If you've got those complexities, you're also much less likely to present well. Uh, to a real estate agent or um, a private uh, renter, uh, someone who wants to rent a private property, and you are going to be uh, at the bottom of the list of people um, um, being chosen. You know, we see discrimination, we see... um, Around the country, um, 25% of those presented to our homeless services are um, identify as having Aboriginal background and we see um, discrimination of other people of colour, um, asylum seekers, refugees uh, as well. All of those people are financially disadvantaged and also um, less likely to be seen as a safe bet by the private real estate market. It's about poverty. It's about disadvantage. It's not inherent in those complexities in life. All of those people can live well in the community. A very small number of people will need ongoing support to sustain housing once they've been able to actually get it. But it's a very small number of people... um, The support that's required is well understood. It's well demonstrated both in this country and internationally. Uh, We know how to do it. We haven't had those programs taken to scale, but the problem that our services have right around the country is they just cannot help people access housing that they can afford on an ongoing basis.
2: So, so, I I mean, all those problems you identified, substance abuse, mental mental illness, Mm. Uh, family violence. These have been. These are always. These have been around, right? But so, so the key issue for you is the supply of affordable social yes, housing. someone yeah.
3: with a long-term mental illness, uh, with you know some complexity associated with that, can live very well mm. uh, in a private rental in the community if they can afford it, and if we uh, have the support services mm. that are available as they might need it from time to time
2: so heather how how well does the private rental market provide for people at the bottom in in terms of income or people with specific uh, problems in their personal lives and complexities in their lives?
0: Um, well, I suppose uh, one thing to say is that private rental is providing uh, at least thirty percent of the housing now, um so and Most, mostly, that's actually well provided, sorry. Um, Mostly mostly that's well provided. Um, The constraint, uh, and it goes a bit to what Brendan was saying about the price problems, is what um, people on on very low fixed incomes that aren't likely to improve, what they've got to choose from is often very mismatched to what they actually need. Um, So, rooming houses, for example, can be a reasonable um, housing option uh, for people who've got somewhere to go during the day, other things in their lives, um, able to kind of uh, share space. Um, But people who've got bigger needs than that often find themselves in rooming houses, cheek by jowl with people that they're annoying and that get annoyed by and off it goes. Mm. Um, So so they're the sort of ways that, uh, you know, the lower end of the market. um, And, and, you know, in Victoria and other jurisdictions, there's some stuff starting to happen around minimum standards, Mm. some of those things that might help some of that. Mm. Um, But it it really is that kind of, when you leave it all to choice and and supply and demand, you're going to have problems.
2: And and the the cheapest housing will be further away from jobs, further away from transport, further away from services, generally? There
0: will be something that makes it less desirable and that goes to the price point, down it goes. Yeah.
4: Brendan? So, I think one of the big challenges we face and Grattan's published extensively on this problem is that, you know, we haven't been building enough. And one of the consequences of that is that everyone moves down. So you know, instead of living in, in in Fitzroy, I might be living in Preston. Instead of someone living in Preston, they're living in Rosanna. Instead of living in Rosanna, they're living in Broadmeadows. People f- go move down the list of quality of of, of dimensions of housing by its its price um, because of or as a result and as a result of they move down quality, size, location, all of these things. And it's probably unsurprising surprising that the people who end up hurt from that scenario are those with the lowest incomes. So I would distinguish between the kind of, what are the housing needs of those that can be in the private rental market as Heather says, which is Mm. the majority of the bottom 20% of income earners. So two thirds are in the private rental market and they've been in the private rental market uh, that's been the case for the majority of the last 30 years. um, Or I think in fact for the last 30 years. And those that you need a bundle of services a combination of a subsidy and maybe um, some support services and then security of tenure to make sure that you can survive well. And I think distinguishing between those two is really important because we often end up in a debate that says, well, if we just give 800,000 affordable homes to everyone in the bottom quintile, the bottom 20%, then we'd solve the problem. And the trouble is that then you're talking about a cost that is just simply enormous. So
2: acknowledging that we have limited resources, Beck. Then the question is, how do we prioritise, how, how do we target and so on. Before we move on to looking at solutions, are there any other comments about, uh, I suppose, drivers of increasing homelessness and vulnerability in housing, in precariousness in housing from, from any of the panellists? Any particular groups you think, and we've already mentioned, of course, Indigenous Australians much more likely to be sleeping rough, far more likely to be in overcrowded housing, far more likely to be homeless and so on. But any other uh, comments here?
3: Um, well, I, I think there's quite a bit of discussion in the community now about um, uh, older people and older women in particular uh, being more likely uh, to found themselves homeless. And I think we are incredibly unprepared that as a community because our whole human services system, you know, assumes that you will, you know, grow up, go to work, um, buy a house, pay it off by the time you're retired and be able to um, live modestly uh, on the aged pension. Yeah, but
2: Because of the assumption of the aged pension in Australia is that your housing costs are covered because you own your own home. It's more right. or less the underlying assumption. Well, it
3: has been, but I think we're going to increasingly find that people who own their own home... Uh, are not going to be able to live modestly uh, on the age pension. At the same time as uh, increasingly people are retiring uh, without being within kūi of owning their home, um, and many more as renters. And I think, um, I think, for me that um, you know it's a shocking development, but it also underlines that it is an economic, you know, it is a predominantly a price point problem, um, it's not so much about someone's um, challenge in sustaining a house. This is ordinary people who've, um, women who've been in and out of the workforce, um, you know, made a contribution in raising families, um, have earned less, have less superannuation because of that and just don't have enough superannuation to be able to make the Australian dream work for them in their retirement.
4: So just to pick up on that, we've done quite a lot of research on home ownership. So home ownership is falling fast amongst the young and the poor, um, particularly amongst the poorest 20% of younger Australians. So, you know, three in five used to own their own home. Now it's one in five of those aged 25 to 34 that are amongst the poorest 20% of that age group. And you see it right across the income distribution and the age distribution that it used to be your chances of owning a home were pretty much the same regardless of for each age group regardless of what your income was, so whether you're poor or wealthy. Now, it's a really steep gradient, and we're seeing that feed into older cohorts, like 55-, 64-year-olds, and we're projecting, actually, that home ownership amongst retirees could fall to just over 50% in a three decades' time if the trends that we've seen over the last couple of decades continue. Uh, in just, just the fact that that's just building in the fact that younger people are less likely, so much less likely to own their home today, and just watching as they age. And so a lot of that's probably already... Priced in, it's already built in. Um, there's also a really interesting difference between pensioners that own their own home today. Their rates of financial stress, the rates of you know, things like not being able to afford a meal, um, are very low, incredibly low, lower than any other group in society, um, lower than working age Australians that have paid work, um, and certainly lower than anyone on Newstart. But those that rent are in trouble. And renters are in trouble when retirement, but they're especially in trouble while they're working. Uh, or not working in this case. And I think, just finally, I think we do need... I just want to put planning back on the table as an issue because supply, you know, we can try to solve this problem, you know, through subsidies and support and government absolutely has a role to play and, you know, Grattan has said that before. But what worries me is, you know, you end up in a world where we say all we have to do is just build more social housing, it'll cost a lot of money um, and we ignore planning. So we know from the Reserve Bank research and others that it adds a lot to the cost of housing, both to rent or buy... Um, and this is planning means that it's hard to build within five to 10 k's of the city centre. You look at Carlton, it's uh, two-storey terraces. Now, I loved where I lived there as a student. Um, I certainly can't afford to live there now, and if the, across a lot of the inner cities of Melbourne and Sydney, the density's barely changed, and it's, I think that's something that we have to think about. It's not just going to be solved by by more government support.
2: So we might come back to the issue of planning in a moment, but I'm going to ask what might seem like a stupid question or a, 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 an in, even an insensitive question. And, Brendan, you've earlier declared that you're a homeowner. I'm a homeowner um, as well, and I've done very well out of being a homeowner. I'll acknowledge that.
4: I think you probably paid a bit less than I did. Well, I
2: bought my house a lot a lot earlier. So, you know, my first house, I've got to say, you know. And so I'm, I, I acknowledge that I've been incredibly lucky um, and if you read my book, I argue that that luck should be shared, but that's another matter. Um, but why, and, and this is a question for everyone, why should homeowners care? Why should it be a matter for me as a homeowner to care about what happens to other people? I think there's a range of responses to that, but I'm just in, you know, I, I just think we should put it out there on the table. Why do we care about this?
0: I'll, um I'll start with that one um well homeowners really have to care otherwise we'll get precisely nowhere um so so that <laughs> for a start um I think many of us want um want a society that that we feel is fair um that we don't feel is um uh, you know we're getting more than someone else in an un- unfair manner and I think a lot of us uh, think like that. Um, typically, the argument's put in terms of um, what about our children or, you know, uh, those sort of arguments. And if you can only extend that feeling as far as your own immediate family, I suppose that's that's a good one. But, but I, um, maybe but I'm you, an idea... If ide- you've
2: done well out of housing, your immediate family will be fine.
0: Well, they will get a leg up. That's absolutely right, because you've got that, that to bank out. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, but uh, I, I would argue that there is that better side of... Of Australians, um, and that needs to be appealed to a lot more, uh, because who likes um hearing about a, a young woman uh, dying in a park? Um, you know there are many people who die quietly. I can tell you um from my time at launch um, that no one hears about, uh, and there's many blighted lives and lost opportunities, and our our whole society is not what it sh- it could be and should be um, for want of this quite simple thing
3: uh, well, i I think we should care. I mean, I think there's a lag in the appreciation of our changing face of who we are as a community and we still see ourselves as a land of home ownership and, you know, if you work hard, you'll get there and the land of the fair go where we're a relatively egalitarian society. But I think that has changed more already than we realise and we're heading towards being a land of gated communities and ghettos. And, um, you know, that changes the quality of life for us all. And I think we're on the verge of losing something very, very precious. Um, You know, it's safely walking around our streets, um, the level of crime, um, the level of um, sense of belonging, and um, uh, as compared to disenchantment of um, people in our community, uh, it's really important. Um, But it's slipping away from us.
4: Look, I'm an economist, so yeah, no, I'll, I I'll, I'll start with self-interest, uh, which is to say that the, the things that... So I agree with you, there's, you know, there's, there's questions about, you know, what kind of shared compact do we have in a society? Uh, what do we do for those that are struggling? Uh, and there are, there are there's costs associated with not acting in that world. What I find in the public conversations we have, and we do a lot of media on these sorts of issues um, and talk to a lot of people, and it tends to be, you know, my kids can't afford a house um, at all, or they can't afford to live near where I do, and therefore they don't get to see my grand—I don't get to see my grandkids—is the line that we see resonating more than anything else. Um, there are also, I think, you can appeal to self-interest in the way that you can solve some of these problems—not the—not the question of funding social housing—but you can probably solve some of the questions around how expensive housing is in ways that benefit the community as a whole. Yeah, but instead, the political dy- dynamic is probably between those that already are happy with the amount of housing where they live and those that don't. So there's an economic benefit and a dividend from making housing more affordable. Um, you know, we see that from work from the United States. And then there is, uh, and if, we, if we're able to build more housing, close to jobs, then you would probably see the benefits of that too for everyone. Um, so there's a self-interest argument there, self-interest argument in terms of home ownership and whether your kids can do it. And then there's, you know, it is a values proposition about what sort of society we want to live in.
2: But it's also, as you're suggesting there, about the efficiency of a I I mean, there's a kind of productivity efficiency argument here too, that the way our housing system is at the moment is not actually good for the economy.
4: Yeah, people are further from work. Mm. They're further from... That means labour force participation is lower. We know that it's lower, particularly for secondary income earners further out. You know, so if you're in Point Cook, for example, your labour force participation as the second earner in a household is lower materially than if you're in Fitzroy. Uh, because it's literally harder to get around. Um, And, you know, it also affects the cost of revision of infrastructure, so it's cheaper to build the infrastructure typically in the inner city. Um, Infrastructure Victoria did really good work on that recently than it is to try to build it further out.
2: Okay, well, let's turn to what needs to be done or what should be done or how we should prioritise what should be done. And, you know, we've just been through a federal election campaign, and as part of that campaign, there was the everybody's, home campaign which I'm sure many people are familiar with uh, and that was basically arguing that governments need to build a lot more social housing. Um, is that the most urgent thing? How much do we need, would we need to build? What would it cost? Jenny, do you want to start on that?
3: Look, um, from our point of view, it's the single most important thing that we need to do as a community. We need to recognise that, you know, we've had decades of prosperity and growth and relying on the market to provide uh, the housing market to provide for the whole community, and it just hasn't. And, uh, you know, it's been um, at least three decades since government started getting out of the business of um, providing social housing in a comprehensive way. I mean, initially it was provided to make sure that um, workers could live close to the the factories in which they work, so it was sort of uh, affordable housing. Um, But uh, the private sector is not going to um, provide, make housing available for people on low incomes. There's no money in it. And um, I think many a um, scheme has been devised for somehow the private sector to produce Housing for the most disadvantaged, and I think um, you know, there, there probably are ways of, of, of um, uh, funding affordable housing. Uh, so,
2: affordable meaning uh, 80% for of, sort of market key workers, nurses, teachers, and uh, baristas, and yep,
3: make sure that. You know, people can live close enough to where they work. But, uh, you know, I have looked um, everywhere all over the world um, for a model whereby that could um, magically be done without um, government putting its hand in its pocket for a subsidy, and I haven't found it anywhere.
4: So on the question of, say, homeless, the homeless population of Australia, you know, we've got 116,000, I agree. Uh, You're not going to... A night. Sorry? A night. Yes. You're not going to get the market rent housing to solve that problem. That is clearly a problem that needs a subsidy because people are suffering from a lack of income and then other supports. But I would di- I would distinguish with low income earners in general because there are countries in the world that do have very affordable housing. So uh, the classic case is Japan that's built an enormous amount of housing. Um, housing is relatively cheap and people on the whole seem to be pretty well housed. Whereas I contrast that with some like San Francisco which I saw in one report recently was being held up as an example of a place where you know, affordable housing policy was being done really well. Because look at all these affordable housing units and you know, San Francisco has the worst housing outcomes of any city in the US because it's impossible to build there. Mm. So on the, on, on, when it comes to homeless, the Australia's homeless population, how to help people who are suffering from homelessness, absolutely social housing. But I think when it comes to what you do for low income earners, you're never, the social housing stock never made up more than 5 or 6% of the overall stock. So, if three decades ago things were better and they're not now, I I'd, I'd struggle to see how s- social housing alone is not going to solve that that problem. So, but the the share of social housing has
2: diminished considerably. It was more like seven percent, and now it's more like four percent. Right? It's I mean, it's
4: fallen from six to four by on our numbers. Right. yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Heather, your views on 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 this? On oh yeah no, social housing is
0: fundamental. Um, I, I suppose I'd um put in a word for what's starting to happen, which is that private rental being recognized as um, something that is here to stay, um, that needs to be uh, have serious policy made about it. Uh, you know, Here we are in Victoria in the midst of the, the rental reforms. Um, some of the fundamental one, ones are the removal of no reason notices to vacate. Uh, it's not happened yet, but it's on its way. Um, some of the features that make social housing desirable, actually, um, are things like certainty um, non-discriminatory access, um, uh, you know, predictable rents, which private rental is nowhere near uh, yet. Um, but, but some of the, the things that make uh, for that desirability of social housing, I think we need to think how we can actually manage to How do you get rental. that in there? Yeah. So,
2: so do you know of anywhere where the private rental market, any international examples where the private rental market provides well for people on low incomes? Without uh, without a government subsidy or without social housing?
0: Oh, not without a government subsidy on very low incomes, no. I mean, that's just maths. Yeah.
4: yeah. But there are countries where you have a subsidy mm-hmm. and then that subsidy is then sufficient to get people out of housing stress. That's right. So you need a combination for those at the bottom. You need a subsidy, whether it's rent assistance, mm-hmm. uh, which has been underfunded. So the fact that it's indexed to CPI rather than rents means it's lost something like... 20% of its real value just in the last, you know, 15 years.
0: Well, the UK, for example, um, I'm not quite sure where they're up to now, but they had a top-up. So it was mm-hmm. actually uh, the your income, what you could spend, plus what your rent was, pay, you know, the middle was given as, as the subsidy. So it's a much smarter way yeah. to do it. Yeah.
2: So let's just stick with... Well, let's come back to rent assistance, but stick with public housing or social housing. Um, so... Brendan, your argument is that we should be if we we do need to build more social housing, but it should be targeted at the the most needy so those people currently who are homeless or at risk of homelessness and who um, is there a problem here though because social housing in Australia has become residualized if I can use that term it has become seen as area as as housing of last resort where people with the most complex problems are concentrated and therefore... And I'm not saying this is a fair characterization, by the way, and therefore is undesirable, and therefore it lacks political support, as in it, it, it's not popular, it's not... Is there a problem here in saying, well, it's only for the people at the very bottom that you end up, in a way, ghettoising social housing as a very niche area uh, that is welfare-only and therefore has a very bad reputation?
4: So, look, these are difficult trade-offs. So the first thing I would say is that, you know, we know, as you mentioned before, we know that a housing-first strategy would work. You know, Finland's done it. Other countries have done it. So we should just explain housing-first as a concept. Well, actually, you're probably a better place to do that than I am.
2: So so standard approaches to ho- homelessness would, would take a staircase approach. So let's help you sort out your uh, finances and your... Um, let's say, substance abuse problems, so that you are in a situation where you can sustain a, a tenancy in the private market. Housing first strategy turns that on its head and says, let's get you housed first and then we can think about all your other problems because until we get you into secure housing, it's not really realistic to ask you to address those other problems. And, and so that, Finland has been extremely successful w- with that housing first approach.
4: So on that basis, though... The, trick, the, the risk with housing first in Australia is that we build the houses or we fund it and we don't give them to those that are most needy. And the reason I say that is because there's a moral, any moral framework would normally say, look, if there are people who are literally going to die if we do not support them, and that's that we're talking about life and death decisions here for, for, for people. if we're not going to assist them first, that in any moral framework seems to be to be more important than helping those that are just in housing stress given a, a constrained amount of money. Then, given how expensive this is, so, you know, if we're going to build 100,000 social housing units, it'll cost something like a billion dollars a year to keep them on the market or an upfront capital cost of 10 to $15 billion. You know, we built during the global financial crisis about 20-odd thousand, and it cost us 4 to $5 billion. So, you know, when we move from a 6% of the social housing stock to 4%, to get us back to 6% today would be 200,000 units. That's either $2 billion a year, each and every year, that's how much... You know, your negative gearing capital gains tax changes would have saved the budget. Would have. Would have. Um, or an upfront capital cost of something like $20 billion, which is and fr- quite frankly enormous. And so what's, I think, feasible in, in the political world that we live in um, is that – and perhaps, probably des- potentially desirable for how you best target support is to help those that are really struggling – and it doesn't necessarily mean that all the housing has to be next to one another. That's not what we're talking about. So you're talking about giving someone a social housing unit who doesn't have one now. That could be as part of a community housing organisation where there's now three more people on the block. Or it could be as part of what community housing organisations do elsewhere or just in the general community. You don't. It, I think people think of that and go straight to we're going to build another tower in Fitzroy. Um, and that's not, I think, what most people what we mean and certainly what not what we mean when we say build more or fund more social housing for the bottom.
2: Jenny and Heather you I mean shouldn't we be ambitious and say actually we should be spending 20 billion dollars um, I mean we we have to mount the political case for that and win the political argument but isn't that where we, do you think that's where we should be heading or do we say Well, what's realistic? We might get, you know, the state government here has promised $209 million for a 1,000 housing units um, over some period of time. I mean, how hard do you push and what do you accept as kind of minimal?
0: Um, Well, one of the great problems is is really getting someone to step forward and take the baton on it. (laughs) Um, Finland, which has been cited a bit, um, has a national leadership on this Um, and... uh, You know, so Victoria needs to do what Victoria can do. Um, The city of Melbourne, similarly, um, you know, developers who who have got the will to put um, proportion of affordable housing in. But it all needs to be um, sewn together at at a national level in Australia. And one of our great impediments, I think, is the Commonwealth state sort of situation. And then local government is another one. And, you know, not-for-profits swimming around in in that particular soup. and I think that if uh, someone actually really steps forward and takes takes leadership on it and has a look at the matter, um, then... <laughs> oh, but ha- how you do that, I have not managed to, to sort of uh, crack, apart from, I suppose, Kevin Rudd was the closest and he had a personal experience of homelessness as a child and felt very strongly about We've it. We've got a Prime
2: matter. Minister who used to work for the Property Council,
4: knows a bit about housing.
2: That's true.
0: Yeah, you never know.
4: So, in terms of ambition, I don't know how many people know, but we had a major political party the last election go to an election promising implicitly to spend $30 billion on affordable housing. That was the scope of the commitment from Labor.
2: So this was Labor's um, affordable housing strategy, which promised um, essentially a kind of reboot of NRAS, the National Rental Affordability Scheme, but with some changes, if that's my, that was my understanding of it.
4: Yeah, so I think what's striking of the things that, say, the Everybody's Home campaign wanted um, they got the one that I think was the least important and got didn't get the others that probably mattered a lot more because thirty. the reason why I say that is that $30 billion was to provide affordable housing at 20% below-market rents. Not social
2: housing, important distinction.
4: And the, the important, really important point there is that by doing that, you're not going to be able to... Someone who is homeless or long-term homeless is not going to be able to survive in 20% below-market rents. It's just not the type of housing you need, and that $30 billion, if we put that towards social housing, that's your 200,000 units over 20 years, that what the sector's wanting, and I think one of the big risks, and that would have been potential tragedies of affordable housing policy in Australia, is we would do NRAS rather than building more social housing. is that
2: that your your view?
3: Look, um, yes, however, Uh, You know, I think there's also the opportunity for states and territories to step up and match that and turn it into social housing and perhaps uh, a federal government and state and territory governments put even a little bit more in to provide that support. I mean, I do think it is about priorities as well. You know, we can, as a community, spend $50 billion building submarines and, uh, you know, $17 billion uh, building, buying, um, you know, Planes, um, defence planes, striker jets, but you know, I mean, they—they're not the conversations we have, um, you know, in—in—in—in in, in, in the build-up to elections. The only other comment I'd like to make is that um, Finland have achieved this in two ways. One is that they guarantee the rents of people who uh, qualify for social housing to 80%, and if you've got extraordinary complexity in your life, it's, it's possible to have it 100% guaranteed. That. Uh, in combination with giving community housing uh, uh, a, a, um, a guarantee to, to back up their loans, provides everyone with the confidence to go ahead and build that affordable housing, knowing that they will be able to get a social wet rent where that's relevant. Now, we're a long way from that, but I think it's a model that we should bear in mind as we row forward.
2: And, and does it matter whether this housing is built as public housing, that is through state authorities owned by the state, or provided, um, you know, through the community housing sector? Because that's a pretty vociferous debate. I mean, there are some people who say it should be the state, it should be public. Uh, Others who say, well, community housing is more in touch with it's, it's less bureaucratic, it's more nimble, it's more in touch with its residents and so on. What what are your views on that?
0: As long as you have uh, non-discriminatory access, Security of rents, security of tenure, um, good quality provision, um, guaranteed. And I suppose people are more familiar with public housing um, and how you you achieve that. Um, and and they don't tick off all those characteristics all of the public housing units, especially the kind of standard uh, that's been let fall. There's a lot of them are very
2: old and very run down now, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. inappropriate in terms of disability access and all sorts of that's things. That's it.
0: That's it. Yeah, they're, they're out lived there, what they were meant to, to um, be for. Uh, so as, lo- as long as you have that, I'm really kind of, you know, don't mind myself. But that's the guarantee that people need. And we're talking about people who don't feel they have much power um, to, to exact that guarantee.
4: I think we're still undertaking our research on which is probably better. The, the impression I have is that you can be relatively neutral between the two. But the way in which you fund them matters a lot. So, you know, something like Enras, the original NRAS, provided about $11,000 a year for 10 years to affordable housing providers and private investors to build housing that was rented out 20% below market rents. That subsidy was $11,000 a year and the benefit that the Commonwealth got for its money in terms of the 20% discount was only about three and a half. You kind of wonder, well, why are we doing it that, that way? Um, so I'm relatively agnostic at the moment between those two options, but it would strike me it will probably be a lot more cost effective if you just got the states to build it because there's no risk of leakage, there's no risk of someone taking a profit on the way through, which I think is what we saw with NRAS is that it ended up, you know, there was tradable markets in the incentives, Um, you know, people were like developers were buying up those incentives and then using them to help sell student apartments that they would built already.
2: But particularly when, I mean, this is certainly research by Hurry, the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute suggests that the most cost-effective way to build is for governments simply to borrow and build, especially given the cost of capital to governments is, is low, particularly at the moment. That's certainly one argument. Whether it's then run by state or run by community housing is another. Mm. Let, let, before I... I'm going to invite questions from, from the floor, um, but before we do that, I want to come to one other thing, which... Has been mentioned but not discussed, and that's Commonwealth rent assistance. Uh, One of the hidden tricks in giving um, or allowing community housing providers to run the housing is that you're you're cost shifting to the Commonwealth because a resident in community housing gets rent assistance, a resident in state run public housing does not. So you shift, there's a little bit of cost shifting going on there. Commonwealth rent assistance has gone up over the past 10 years from some. From around 2.4 to 4.4 billion dollars, and that is despite the fact that it's capped at low rates. That has risen much lower, slower than rents, and uh, it, it, it is going to go up a lot more. I mean, we are going to spend a lot on on CRA because there's going to be more and more people going on the pension and being in the private rental market because they don't own their homes. So, how effective is Commonwealth rent assistance? How useful is it as a way of addressing these problems? Um, What's your your views on on Commonwealth rent assistance?
0: Uh, I, I, you couldn't withdraw it tomorrow, is, is one thing, um, but in terms of well targeted and effective, I think it's uh, it's got a long way to go.
2: Yeah. Because
0: uh, it's it's too low, it's too broad, um, it's not targeted um, at the people who really need it and in that deeper way, um, like the UK one that I cited before. Um, but having implemented it, uh, I think it was the beginning of the '90s. It came in. How you back it out? A, a very good question. And it was, I believe, inflationary of rents um, when it, you know, first came in.
3: I mean, our is that Centrelink incomes, um, are, you know, are way too low, and, and uh, the rental assistance, as Brendan said earlier, is completely lost um, touch with um, what it's, uh, the job it's meant to do. But um, if that happens without an increase in supply, then it's going to be reasonably ineffectual.
4: Look, I've, I've got a more positive view of rent assistance. Um, I think for a couple of reasons. One, it's not that well-targeted, but it's a hell of a lot better well more better targeted than something like affordable housing. So half, about a quarter of people in uh, low-income renters, a quarter of renters in Australia can get rent assistance, whereas, say, half of Australians are actually eligible for a dwelling through NRAS because the caps are $50,000 for a single or $70,000 for a couple. Now you cannot get Commonwealth rent assistance when you're on those kind of incomes. And so you know, one thing that rent assistance does is it doesn't mean you're giving key worker accommodation to, to nurses and teachers, who I understand there might be an economic argument for giving them that support, but they tend to be in the top half of the income distribution if we're thinking really clearly and careful about who we want to help. They're not near the bottom and therefore probably wouldn't be the first in the queue. The other reason I, I think rent assistance works is because it's pretty fair. You get the same amount depending on regardless of where you go. Um, and that means that people can choose how much they want to spend on housing. and you know rent assistance itself, we say it should rise by 40 percent. We don't think that would be very inflationary to rents because you know the rental market is 50 billion dollars a year. The rental market at the bottom is 20 billion amongst the bottom 40 percent. Um, you're only talking about a billion dollars a year that you're giving out, and people don't have to spend it on housing. In fact, they kind of can't unless they move. And the big difference is that in the countries where the rent assistance is given to the landlord, you see most of it ends up in rents because the the landlord is making the call, well, you know, you can afford this now. I'll just take that money, thank you very much. When the rent assistance is given to the individual, um, you know, most of the literature says the impact on rents would be one or 2% most because you can only move you can only spend more on housing if you actually move house. Um, I have, I lived on rent assistance for a while. That was just part of my income from Centrelink. And, you know, I was a student, so it probably didn't go on housing. <laughs> I
2: mean, the, the, the and, and I'll invite, we've got a couple of microphones now. If you've got a question um, you'd like to ask or a comment you'd like to make, I'd, I'd ask you to keep it to... Keep it concise. I don't mind comments, but keep them concise so the panel can respond and so we can get to as many people as possible. And I'll just, while we're getting the microphone to people, um, just one other comment, though. I mean, landlords get rent assistance and they don't have to do anything for it, right? It's a subsidy to landlords, even though it's indirect. Landlords don't have to draft proof. They don't have to make sure that the heating works. They don't have to do anything else for this essentially subsidy from taxpayers to landlords. Along with negative gearing and all the rest of it.
4: Well, I don't think it is a subsidy to landlords. I think it ends up in the pockets of the renter. Um, and we have we have rules around, um, you know, quality, the tenancy standards, as ineffective or inadequate as they might be, that are around trying to make sure those other things take place.
0: Well, we will have. You still don't have to have a heater.
2: So, so Heather, your point would be that we also need to have higher standards in in the private rental market. Absolutely. Okay, we've got a. A couple of hands up here. Um, Yep. We'll start with you.
5: This discussion discussion reminds me of the one where I was taking part in 1961. Very little difference. We had the same problem then and we have the same problem today. And in Australia, our main problem is the vicious Stalinist governments we have. For the first time in my life, I voted Liberal. Can you ask
2: a question or make a comment quick?
5: Because of the the attack by the state government on boarding houses, building the most vulnerable people, and and nobody wants uneducated, uh,
2: ugly people in their in their streets. So they are attacking boarding houses to the nth degree, and and for the people who are at the bottom. And this problem is is only it's in our in our. Le- Uh, The parliament over there, they pass it. That's that's what the problem is. Okay, I'll take that as a comment.
3: Well, I do think it is getting worse. I mean, homelessness has gone up 30% in the last 10 years. So while, you know, we have always had homelessness, I think it's uh, the numbers and the seriousness of disadvantage and the lack of hope in actually obtaining housing that people can afford um, is increasing.
2: Okay, Um, and there's a great book called um, Housing the Australian Nation, written in 1942, which my friend here, Rob Pradlin, lent to me, which suggests that there are a whole lot of commonalities, and and it's that key point, the market will not provide for those at the bottom. We can't expect it to subsidise housing requires a subsidy. Um, Yeah, thanks.
0: uh, Hello. Are you? I just had a question about, um, from all of the research I've done, there seems to be the, um, the issue of like the actual the inflation of co- housing for the entire Australian society is problematic. It's not just I mean it's obviously really bad for the lower end, but it's having these horrible um, economic knock-on effects um, and it, we're at this stranglehold point where if the market continues to go up, it's going to further and further pr- cause all the, the you know the gaps between the haves- and haves-nots, or but then if it goes down, then you run into the issues of people who are in the market. Um, falling underwater. into negative equity and having a big economic, uh, I guess, downfall. Um, what is there... How do you think we could sort of straddle that fence? So...
2: OK. Um, so this is the issue, right, that, that uh, homeowners want their housing values to go up and if they don't, then recent entrants to the market are underwater and we have massive levels of household debt in Australia, so we create the risk of a financial crisis if house prices go down too much. But the more they go up, the worse the situation gets. It's, it's been described as the game of homes by one analyst. Okay. I, I, um, I regard it a bit as, as like a Ponzi scheme. Uh, it, it's, this is really... Now, my argument would be change the tax settings on housing, but I don't know what other people think. Yeah. Yep. Get rid of stamp duty, replace it with a broad based progressive broad based <laughs> property tax that would capture capital
4: gains... Um, yeah, so, uh, so, so one, uh, one point would be you're always going to have housing cycles. They're always going to go up and down. Um, the fact that prior, it's interesting that this time around, I've never seen a housing downturn in Australia that's been celebra- so celebrated by the Australian policy class <laughs> as what we've seen over the last 18 months. So, you know, the Reserve Bank Governor is, I don't get the impression that he's particularly worried about falling house prices. What he's worried about is the fact that the economy is performing under, or uh, well, the inflation's below target and unemployment's rising. Um, and so they're, they're willing to, interested in cutting interest rates because they need to out of necessity. And we're trying to use macroprudential rules to try to make sure that that doesn't reinflate the market. I think um, there is, though, at the heart of it, a trade-off that no, younger Australians can't win unless someone loses. So prices do have to fall in the long run. But what we've tended to find in the past is that prices have come down suddenly, a bit, and then they've often just flatlined for a decade. And that's actually how we've improved affordability in the past. And you know, when you look around the world at countries that have quite affordable housing now, like Japan, it started with a crisis. um, But the thing is that prices never went back up, and they stayed where they are. And so I think you can do it in a way that doesn't necessarily blow up the economy, but it's probably, part of it's a financial cycle, which is what we've had, and then part of it's just, you know, reform planning rules, you maybe fix the tax system, those things would mean that price, house prices don't rise as quickly and they may fall relative to inflation in the long run. And that, to me, would be the best outcome. And rents would fall, which is actually, I think, the main game when we're talking about, you know, the kind of people we're talking about tonight that are really struggling.
3: I mean, I. I think it is remarkable in this country that uh there actually isn't any um policy um granting government i mean we we do now have a um minister for housing for the first time um since um the previous labor government we've got a, a minister, an assistant minister uh for homelessness but we don't have any national plan in relation to homelessness or housing um and so we tend to have a series of discussions, uh, you know, uh, as as Peter has done very systematically tonight about all of the variables that are involved, but we don't have any discussion about how we might put them all together um, to deal with this in a way uh, that leads to a soft landing and, you know, has um, views housing as social infrastructure that's important to our overall wellbeing and monitors um, all those different variables as they go up and down with a view to... Showing leadership and making sure that we can house everyone in Australia as well as not have our biggest market fall over. Uh, And there doesn't seem to be any will to do that. There doesn't. Um, seem to be any sense that that's something we should do at a con- as a country. And until we do, we'll just keep going round and round, as the gentleman said over there, mm. with a conversation that we have been having in some ways mm. for a very long time.
2: And it's very hard to change because 65% of Australians own their own homes and have an interest in the values of their homes going up and up. So, next question, thanks.
3: Uh, hello. I would like to know uh, what the panellists think about local government's role in providing affordable housing. Like, what do they see their role as in this space?
0: I think local government probably proportionately, uh, in many cases, does more than its, um, than its counterparts. <laughs> I think because it's so proximate to the problem. I mean, we're sitting here in the city of Melbourne, um, which you know is is contributing to the social uh, safety net with actual funding, with coordination, um, uh, locating uh, land that can be used for for social housing, all those sort of things. Um, so I suppose my point is that every Every level of government and every kind of sector has to do their bit. Uh, And as Jenny so eloquently put it, if it was only um, under this umbrella of actual coordination and planning, um, I think we'd we'd get somewhere. So local government's certainly got a role because it knows a lot um, and can do a few things. But it, it doesn't have most of the levers.
4: I think national coordination's overrated. I actually <laughs> I think well, you know, we probably haven't had a lot of it, but no. um, I actually <laughs> think it's over..: give it a try. Well, I think if you have a national housing strategy, what's it going to do? So the thing that we I think would make the most difference to the cost of housing in Australia is actually the local government level. It's the planning rules that make it really hard to build housing where people want to live. We know that that's correlated really closely with levels of income. So higher income areas of cities tend to make it harder for people to be able to subdivide and, and build apartments, which quite frankly is what we're looking at, apartments and townhouses. Density in Melbourne and Sydney in the inner suburbs has barely moved. I, when we talk about a national housing strategy, I think what what you, you're giving governments an out because it's actually really easy to create a national housing strategy. You just have a press release that has national housing strategy on it. I'm just being flippant, I'm sorry. Um, But the levers for the supply side are at the state and the local level and what the Commonwealth, I think we should be clear what the national government can do is it can provide funding for social housing um, and it can fix aspects of the tax system. It will make a difference, but I, I think that's also overrated. I don't think that reforms to negative gearing would have made that much difference to the housing market. Post- not, post- maybe not
2: negative gearing, but what about capital gains tax and what about a shift from stamp duty to broad-based property tax, which only the national government can coordinate to bring all the states on board? It's a very big agenda. It's like competition policy reform and so on. But, Heather, I cut you off.
0: Oh, you know, post-war... Uh, reconstruction. Put the Post-war re- reconstruction um, was when the national government last stepped in big time, and that's when we got a whole lot of social housing. Um, it, you know, there were small efforts locally before that. Here comes the historian. Um, uh, in Finland, it's, it's national. Uh, New Zealand are making moves. Canada's making moves. Um, so, yeah, the, the old kind of paper, national housing strategy, there you go. P- press release done, of course. No one needs one of those. No-one needs one of those. Um, but, you know, I, I think um, from my many years of observation um, that you do actually have to... Um, it, leadership is required, and that's, that's where we need it to not only come from, but it does have to be partly there.
4: Sorry, there I'm being flippant. I suppose the one thing I would say in response is that back in the 50s and 60s, we had an enormous increase in demand for housing. You know, we had record levels of population growth into Australia. Our cities in Melbourne and Sydney were booming. We also relaxed rules around how much you could borrow... There was an incredible additional amount of demand for housing. And what happened to house prices? They didn't move. What did we do? We built an enormous amount of housing. So the kinds of constraints that, used, that no, now exist on the housing market, on the supply side, didn't exist three decades ago. And so obviously it's not the whole solution, but I think yeah. that's the thing that would make the most difference, and it's not at a national level, unless you get the Commonwealth to fund it to bribe the states to do it and that's essentially they've got the money but they don't have the power to make it happen.
2: That's, that's true. And, and I mean I take your point about we build a lot of housing, we also build a significant amount of social housing during that period which is what we've stopped doing.
3: I mean just to come back to the initial comment about um, local government, I mean uh, in the time that I've been watching there's a bit of a ping pong between local government not feeling are empowered to, um, you know, require social housing or affordable housing as part of developments and wanting leadership from state government and state government saying, oh, we can't really do that. It needs to happen at the local level. And I do think, I agree with Brendan, the state government should do that. I mean, should um, take the lead, but then local governments will have to grapple with the political ramifications of that um, and the impact, you know, there's there's a lot about uh, not in my backyard, um, and make sure that every time we do a housing development or redevelopment, uh, there is a component of affordable and social housing in it, because that's the only way we're not going to start keep slipping further behind.
2: So, we have more questions. Yep. Go for it.
6: Oh Hi, Thanks for the Steve. Bring that
2: microphone closer. Find it right at your mouth.
6: Hi. Can you hear me? Uh, thanks for the stimulating discussion. I'd like you to comment on what's happening here in Victoria. Uh, where, whereas in European countries, uh, the proportion of public housing to total housing is around 15 to 20%, 17% in the UK, here in Victoria it's the state where the per- percentage is lowest, 42 And what is the state government doing? It's expropriating uh, 70% of public housing estates, giving them to private developers, and rebuilding public housing with less tenants than there were before on those estates.
2: Okay, so this is Victoria's public housing renewal program, very controversial. And and, uh, Jenny, maybe you can start with your response to this, which, which does involve some sale of public lands, to private developers, and so on.
3: Yes, I mean, you're right. The uh, basic model is, uh, as I understand it, is for government to, uh, you know, sell the property to private developers and the return being um, that uh, you, that the number of public housing units is uplifted by at least 10% uh, in the rebuilt um, development. And I think it is pretty tough to think about, if you like, selling off the farm in order to get that um, uh, new fabric and that uplift in the number of properties and more appropriate properties in terms of um, singles and doubles, which is what we're very, very short of uh, in our community. But um, the Council to Homeless Persons and the other peaks in Victoria that are very concerned about housing for people on our lowest incomes um, have resigned ourselves to this um, approach because... Um, we do need to replace all this aged um, public housing that we have, and if we um, require government to do it, it will—it'll uh, take every effort that they have. Uh, we won't get any additional social housing stock, and we'll continue to go backwards at at the greatest rate of knots. So I'm very sympathetic to the point you're making, but we have, um, you know, accepted that this is the way it has to be.
2: Sort of better than nothing. Is that what
3: well, you're saying? It, it, the, the properties that we're talking about are continually going offline because they're just not suitable for habitation. They're in terrible state. They do have to be rebuilt. Um, how a state government would find the money to do that without any help from anywhere else um, is hard to fathom.
2: Yes, question down the front.
7: Hi. Um, Keep that I'm microphone close. Yep. Can you hear me?
5: Yep.
7: I'm a baby boomer, so I'm actually very lucky. But I want to go back 30, 35 years about – and a follow-up from the speaker, the person there – about Collingwood, um, high-rise, you know, apartments. The government at the time wanted to get rid of all the people out of that. But where they want to send them is way out where there was no, no rails. And actually the government at the time, local government, did stop that. But what – I was really angry about the Carlton that they actually sold off to developers. And then they've got more private and, yes, and low income. But they didn't make up those apartments for low income that they actually gave to the private sector. And I'm furious about what's happening around inner Melbourne with high-rise and it's got to be planning, and it's both sides of government, it's state, it's federal, it's Labor and Liberal, they really have to take responsibility for it. So, it's a comment.
4: I think the only thing I'd say about the, 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 the renewal program in Victoria is that it feels very opaque. So, I, in principle, don't have an issue with if we choose to sell off public land, we get a really good return for it, and it allows us to leverage and increase the amount of stock. Um, I am not worried up front about that. But what I worry about is what we're getting for it. And the question is, are we actually getting value for money um, out the other end? Because you know, one piece of land is fungible to another. You could buy one spot slot and sell another, uh, sell one plot and buy another. But what worries me is the fact that I don't think we actually know what we got, in some cases, for the money. And it's
2: land you can only sell once. I mean, it's a government asset, and while land is fungible, this is well-located land in the inner city. It's a one-off opportunity. That would be my comment on that. Question over here? Uh,
5: I just want to raise the issue, go back to taxation, which I think is a major variable in all of this. Um, notwithstanding the Labor Party's direction, and I think the mistake they made about franking credits are making them retrospective, but the rest I agree with. And I think they would have made a difference. I don't agree with the Grattan rep- representative. I think combined, as you said, but there's one thing we haven't talked about and that is um, uh, the value of houses in regard to the pension. You can have a $2 million, $3 million house owner occupied um, and have $800,000 in the bank or in your super and still get the pension or access to a part pension. and. My question, probably particularly to the Grattan representative, is I gather overseas, this is necessarily so, even in the US, that owner-occupied housing is taken into account in the assets test. So this, if that's true, this is another variable that makes the Australian system very loaded to my generation as a grandparent. Or oh, isn't it going to be terrible that our children and our grandchildren won't get enough money in their inheritance? This is the theme, wasn't it, in the last election? It's, It's...
4: Death it's So, this is actually one of my favorite hobby horses. So, we do a lot of work on retirement income policy. Um, you know, we are in a world where most people own their own home. The fact that only the first $200,000 of the value of the home is included in the assets test and the rest of it is by definition exempt. So, you know, my grandfather in Bendigo, um, the same amount of his house, 200000 is included in the assets test as someone in Turak. That's manifestly unfair. But it probably didn't matter quite as much in a world where the housing haves and have, there was mainly housing haves in retirement and few have nots. We're moving to a world where half of older Australians won't own their own homes, and that manifest distinction is going to become much sharper. And so the natural thing to do is to switch it around and say anything worth more than, say, $500,000 is included in the assets test. Now, look, at Grattan, we're happy to be bold. Uh, But even we're not saying include it from the first dollar. Um, And I don't think after what happened with franking credits in the election, anyone's necessarily going to do that uh, in the near term. But it is going to be a challenge we're going to have to confront. So, you know, can I imagine it happening in the next five years? Well, you know, probably not. But will something have to happen in the next 20? I'd say the answer is yeah, we're going to have to deal with that. Now, on, on negative gearing and CGT, we think they're good reforms. We supported them. The reason why I don't think it would make much difference to housing markets is it's $3 billion a year at the value of the tax break in a six point six trillion dollar housing market. It's just tiny. It's one to two percent of prices. That's what we said, the Commonwealth Treasury, uh the New South Wales Treasury and others. Um and so I think it's unf- I think the main benefits of those reforms are the budgetary benefits that the money can be used better in other places.
2: Okay. Look, thank you for all your oh, we're gonna take one more? Okay. We'll take one more question. Thanks.
1: Thanks. Um so um, I'd like to go back to Jenny's point about the new Minister for Housing. Um, so, Michael Sakar made headlines recently or last year when he said that the best way to get yourself a house was to have a high-paying job. Um, this kind of comment suggests to me that there's a lack of political will to reduce housing inequality um, and I guess what will it what will it take? What do we need to see? And I guess more directed at you, Brendan, the Home Loan Deposit Scheme that the federal government put, in, put out recently, which I saw you commented on quite um, profusely. So um, that was very interesting. But are you, like me, concerned that that might lead to more people becoming in, uh, becoming in mortgage stress because they're actually borrowing too much money, especially if housing prices do drop?
4: Well, let me start with the first time deposit scheme. So I think it's going to be relatively ineffective. It's capped at 10,000 people a year. It'll probably mainly help those that were going to buy a house anyway. You know, they got to a five percent deposit. That they—that's all you need to get to, and then you can borrow to buy a house, and you don't have to pay lender's mortgage insurance, which you would normally have to pay if you're borrowing less than twenty percent. Um, it's only ten thousand people a year. Most of them would have got it anyway, even if every single person on that scheme did net would never have otherwise bought a house without that intervention. After a decade, the home ownership rate in Australia would be one percent higher. So it's going to be small. I'm not as worried. While the scheme's uncapped, that it with the scheme's capped, that it's going to have much of an impact on people getting into mortgage stress because they can't afford their homes. Because people who are marginal borrowers are getting kicked out by the fact that we have these quite stringent serviceability rules, and um, which require you to make sure that the banks are required to make sure you can repay your loan given current income and expenditure, at an interest rate of seven percent now. It'll probably be more like six and a quarter after some changes Afra puts through. I don't think it's going to have much of an impact. But the broader point here that that scheme illustrated is you're pretending somewhat that first time buyers can win and younger Australians can win without someone losing. And it's pretending that you can use the demand side of the market in order to fix the problem when in reality what we've done in Australia is we've stopped, we haven't been upfront with the public about what it's going to take and we've been telling people it's okay, we'll be able to fix the problem, here's another scheme that sounds good but doesn't make much of a difference, that's going to solve the problem. And the problem with that is that it you don't fix the problem, so it gets worse, but you also don't front with the public what it's going to take and then those broken promises about what it's, it's going to take um, and what, what the effects are of the policy you put in place is end up reducing faith in government in the long term. So let me uh, ask
2: for responses from Heather and Jenny too. On, on the other part of that question is, what will it take for us to address housing inequality in Australia? I mean, you know, the, the attempts by the Labor Party at the last election failed for whatever reason, whether it was franking credits or something else. So for, for now those reforms, negative gearing reforms and capital gains tax reforms are off the agenda. So what what will it take, do you think, to, to start addressing this problem in a, in a meaningful way? Even if we're just thinking about, as, as Brendan put it, the premise of the people that in most need, um, you know, who, who really need social housing, who are homeless or at risk of homelessness.
0: Well, um, to start to improve uh, rental law, uh, it took an increase, a significant increase, in the number of renters who vote. So it's going to take um, a significant increase in the number of people who say, this is an important issue to me, I want my elected representative to do something about it. Um, I think it's as simple as that and as hard as that.
3: (laughs) Jenny? Well, I fear um, the homelessness problem will have to become a, a great deal Worse, and I fear that it will lead to um, social unrest. Um, Certainly in Los Angeles, I think they increased the um, sales tax there voluntarily as a community by half a percent or something like that uh, in order to deal with the homelessness on their streets, the um, palpable. Rough sleeping, and the community came together around that. I would like to think in Australia we could have a sophisticated discussion about the choices we are making and the choices that we should be making, but there's not a lot of sign of it yet.
2: Okay, so thank you for your questions, for your attendance here this evening. A reminder that a podcast and transcript of this event will be posted on the Grattan Institute website in due course, and you can subscribe on the website to the Grattan newsletter and for updates about future events and institutes, new research, and so on. But uh, please join me now in thanking our three panellists, Jenny Smith, Heather Holz, and (laughs) Gwyneth.